to celebrate him. I really like how matter-of-factly the Bible says really amazing things, miraculous things. The first sentence of the Bible, it just hits you. It says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It's like, there it is. Okay. I wondered as a kid, where, where did people come from? You read a little further in Genesis 2-7, it says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. If you read further, you see that God took woman out of man, created her from Adam, and was called Eve. And human history and existence is littered with miracles. It's littered with the power of God and his ability to do what we cannot to bring something out of nothing, to bring life out of non-life. And he is such a giving God. He has given life. Everything that we possess, we, we didn't even ask for. He just gifted it to us. And uh, one miracle is after the great flood, people gathered together to build a tower. They said, we want to make a name for ourselves. God had said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So spread out, but the people said, we don't want to spread out. We want to make a name for ourselves. We want to make something to reach up to heaven. And God saw what they were doing, it says, and he, uh, it says in Genesis 11, 7, 9, come, let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. God confounded the single language into thousands upon thousands of languages. And language is really a gift from God that we would be able to communicate with one another in a way we can understand. And if there was anyone to do that, to confuse the languages, to create all these languages, God would be the one to do it because he's packed all that information of DNA into every single cell. He's filled the earth with living things. He is altogether wise and righteous. There's more people on the earth today than there was then. However, there are far less languages. Do you know that it's estimated that a language goes extinct every 14 days? Totally extinct. About a third of the 7,000 languages spoken today are endangered. It's estimated by the end of this century, half of them will be extinct, no longer spoken by anyone. The awesome thing is no matter what language people speak, God's love translates into all of them. It can be understood. And that uh, our God is able to communicate with us because he's the one who gave us language. He, he understands us in the way we think. And so God's very personal. He doesn't just know what language you speak. He knows your name. He knows your future. And it's a good one. And uh, we, we can experience that and walk in it when we trust and obey him. Let's pray and we'll get into our text today. Thank you, Father, that you are a, a miraculous God. You do marvelous things. And, and past finding out, Lord, the details of how you have made everything, how you have created language, um, how you've created the human body and the ecosystems of the world are beyond our comprehension. 
The heavens do indeed declare the glory of God. The way that you put the firmament and the cosmos together, the way that you cause everything to continue, that you made the earth teeming with life, Lord, you have done marvelous things. And I pray that you would open our eyes to see your glory today in this passage where you visited your people with the Holy Spirit and forever changed um, the world by creating the church. And Lord, may we as your church be used by you to glorify you, to proclaim your praises in whatever tongue we speak, Lord. May it be spoken in love and for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll be in Acts chapter 2. The disciples obeyed the command of Jesus to remain in Jerusalem. He had ascended up to the Father. And he said, you will receive the promise of the Father, the gift of the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. And for 10 days, they continued in prayer unto the Lord. And a little background about the day of Pentecost, because that's the, the time frame when this event happens. Jesus was crucified during the Passover. 50 days after that was the day of Pentecost or Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks. There's a lot of different names for this particular feast, but it was one of the three major feasts that people would, the males, would have to go to Jerusalem to appear before the Lord. And uh, it's also called the Feast of Harvest in Exodus 23:16, even the Day of the First Fruits in Numbers 28:26. People were to bring a freewill offering of the Lord. They were to bring a grain offering. Two loaves of bread would be uh, presented before the Lord. And Jewish tradition currently, because there's no, like Passover, there's a reason why they celebrate it. There's no Old Testament reason why, except just to thank God for what he's given. So traditionally, modern day, is people celebrate the giving of the law on the day of Pentecost. So that's the significance, kind of like we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ on on. Uh, December 25th, we know he likely was not born on that date, but it's the day that we customarily remember and celebrate that day. And for the Jews, they, on the day of Pentecost today, they recall that God gave them the law and they celebrate the law being given. So Acts 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues, as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. The previous chapter said that there were about 120 disciples who remained in Jerusalem and had gathered together, and they had prayed over those 10 days between Christ's ascension to heaven and the day of Pentecost. And it says they continued in one accord in prayer and supplication. So they're praising the Lord. They were seeking him in prayer, making requests to God. And suddenly on the day of Pentecost, it said there was a sound compared to a mighty rushing wind. So it did not become windy. It wasn't like their hair was blowing and the, the curtains were flapping in the breeze. It was the sound of wind. So it was a howling, a roaring. It was a very loud sound that filled the house. And it was accompanied by the appearance of tongues, tongues that looked like they were made of fire, two of them on each of their heads. So a very unique experience. If that would happen now, we would likely be a bit like, what is going on? Very odd, right? Um, I've not found an artistic 
rendering which does the scene justice. I looked around. I said, is there a good picture? Really not. Can't really conceive of precisely what happened. And even as the sound filled the house that they were in, the presence of the Holy Spirit filled them. And it was evidenced by them clearly speaking languages that they did not know previously. So they began speaking in foreign tongues, tongues foreign to them. And the God who created all languages in heaven and on earth enabled them to speak words of praise. They did not even know. It wasn't a conscious as far as knowing what they were saying, but they were speaking clearly, as we'll see. And this filling of Jewish believers with the Holy Spirit, it correlates with a future time when Peter later spoke to Cornelius. If you want to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 10, verse 44, and I thought it good to bring these two together, because the Holy Spirit coming upon the Jews as they worshiped the Lord and prayed, was assigned to other devout Jews of the Holy Spirit's presence through Jesus Christ, that Jesus had sent the gift of the Spirit. We see when the Holy Spirit came upon the Gentiles in a very similar manner, it was assigned to the Jews that God had received the Gentiles, and they too were citizens of heaven. They had received the promise of the Lord. So Acts 10.44 Peter had been called to Cornelius' house, and he was just explaining the gospel to them when this happened. Verse 44 of Acts 10, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So it was an astonishing thing. And it confirmed the fact that God had indeed filled the, Holy, filled the Gentiles and Jews with the Holy Spirit. Just like those two loaves were waved before the Lord on the day of Pentecost, so God receives both Jew and Gentile who freely offer themselves to him. We all have uh, the promise of the Father. And the Bible says, If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You think of a gift being poured out. And we can make this a bit technical. Is it, is it technical to receive a gift? Like if I hand you something. He's like, oh, hold on. How do I take this from you? How do, you know, like this to receive it or avert my eyes and back away? Like, we don't, it's just like, oh, thank you. And you just take it from them, right? You receive what they are giving you. And so this receiving of the gift of God, it's quite like receiving the life that you've received. It's not a real technical thing. God pours out his spirit upon us and we receive him. So we'll continue. Acts 2, verse 5. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is this that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? 
Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Others, mocking, said, They are full of new wine. Due to the day of Pentecost, the feast when all the Jews would gather together from every nation, they had come. They had assembled, and that roaring wind sound attracted them. They heard this loud noise, and they're like, what is that? And they came from everywhere to see what was going on. A loud noise has a way of attracting attention. You know, If you're in your house, it's late at night, you hear a very loud crash in the living room, Likely, you're not just going to roll over and just say, ah, whatever. Could have been anything. You will probably go to investigate. I remember a friend of mine, he once filled a balloon with the oxygen and acetylene. And uh, in a neighborhood, I'm like, oh, man, his neighbors must have loved him. I was a kid at the time. He lit the homemade fuse. And let me tell you, that was a boom. It was like, boom. You could just feel it. I heard car alarms that I could barely hear in the distance. Woo, 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 woo. At least three or four. People were mobilized. You know, doors are opening, and people are like, what is going on? And we all knew what happened, so we just ran. Um, so they hear this rushing wind. They hear this loud sound, and they're like, what is this? And they gather, and to their surprise, they hear people speaking in their own language. They, being a foreigner... They're hearing people speak like locals with their accents and using their terminology. And they're saying, what is going on? How is it that we hear all these people speaking our language? The praises of God. There were no Rosetta Stone programs or Duolingo. There was, And even if, think about it, even if you did use Rosetta Stone, would you sound like someone from back home? No, your accent would probably be it'd just be a dead giveaway that you learned it from an app and not from being immersed in that culture. But here they are, back in the day, hearing these voices and thinking, wow, these people sound like they're from back home. But they're Galileans. How could they possibly know to speak that language? So what they heard is very important. Not just that they heard a loud sound, but what they heard, it says in the passage, they heard them speaking the wonderful works of God. Tongues inspired by the Holy Spirit, they're not directed from men to men, but from man to God. Praise to God. This Acts account, it's a historical narrative, but the theology, we have that in 1 Corinthians 14, 1 and 2. He writes, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit, he speaks mysteries. So we have here in 1 Corinthians 14, the explanation that tongues inspired by the Holy Spirit will be spoken as praise to God. The God who inspires all tongues also can provide an interpretation for the tongue. It's not a translation, but it's an interpretation, a loose rendering of the meaning so that those who hear it can understand what's being said. 
And let me point out, the gift of tongues is not the main or the only way to reveal you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. We'll see as we go through the book of Acts, God manifests his power in people's lives in very various ways. And we see Peter, just in a few minutes, is going to begin preaching. And this boldness he has is quite different than we have seen him before when he was denying Jesus and hiding behind locked doors for the fear of the Jews. Bold in the face of adversity. This was amazing, it says, and perplexing to the devout Jews who heard it. They wondered what it meant. And language is in, it's intended to communicate something. And when they heard this, they're like, well, what does this mean? What's the significance of this? And some who had no rational explanation said, well, it's just a bunch of drunks. Now they're just, they had a bit too much last night or this morning. And this sort of thing still happens today. The Holy Spirit moves and there's people who question, they slander, they doubt it. They may even attribute it to uh, demonic power. And while there are deceiving spirits in the world, we know the Holy Spirit is active and necessary in every move of God. So the Holy Spirit is still at work today in the hearts of God's people. Verse 14 of Acts 2. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is quite a change in Peter, don't you say? from hiding, from denying, from running. Here he is, and he says, Men of Jerusalem, listen up. Listen to what I'm going to tell you. And he begins to say that this is a fulfillment of Scripture. What you are seeing, what you are hearing, this is what God promised to do in Joel. He was enabled by the Holy Spirit to teach and interpret Scripture correctly. And he's going to refer to three Old Testament passages for the sake of time, I'm not going to go into great depth on each of those. But um, the point of emphasis is how the Holy Spirit divinely brought these to remembrance. I, there was no way to know how the Holy Spirit was going to reveal himself through them. It's not like Peter had um, studied up on how to prove what had just occurred was scriptural or biblical. The Holy Spirit in that moment brought to remembrance things even as Jesus promised he would. Like in that hour, you don't need to even prepare. The Holy Spirit will tell you what to say. And we see him being filled with the Spirit. He was able to fend off doubtful objections and point to the truth of the Scripture and what they had seen. So he begins by immediately debunking the idea they were drunk. He says it's only the third hour of the day. That's 9 a.m., way too early for people to be drunk. And I think Matthew Poole had interesting insight. He wrote his commentary in 1853 
And he said, on feast days, most people did not eat or drink until noon, that they might be more intent upon and fit for the service of the day. He also said, to our shame, is how he puts it, this argument, which in sober times was very conclusive in those days, is not so strong today. (laughs) You know, we probably know people who, before 9 a.m., had already been quite sauced, um, But he says, in this day, a more sober age. This was a very conclusive argument. And uh, last I checked, you start slurring your speech and not speaking clearly, not speaking other languages, probably not speaking praise to God. So those really don't go together. Uh, So no, they were not drunk with wine. They were filled with the Spirit. And he said, the pouring out of the Spirit is what the prophet Joel wrote about in Joel 2, 28 through 32. He says this is something that would happen in the last days. We know, as we've studied through um, Hebrews, for instance, uh, 1 John, that we are in the last days. He was not saying that this prophecy was completely fulfilled in his day, but it was a fulfillment of what God would do by pouring out his Spirit in the last days. For instance, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. So we see the writer of Hebrews considered himself in the last days, and we are still in that age. This great and awesome day of the Lord that Joel speaks of, that's the ultimate judgment when Jesus returns to judge the world in righteousness. And there will be judgment at the beginning of the thousand-year reign of Christ and also at the end when the world is dissolved uh, that the scriptures speak of. But that last bit there, do you see that? Peter says what's true today through the new covenant in Christ's blood, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is for you, and that is for me. God is a Savior, and whoever calls on his name will be saved. Acts 2.22 Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will also rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life, You will make me full of joy in your presence. Peter addresses the Jews plainly concerning Jesus, his mighty miracles, wonders, and signs he did in their midst. Those things that Jesus did, it testified of his divinity and that his claims were true. Jesus made a lot of claims, but then he did supernatural things that would back up those claims, just like his resurrection from the dead. Remember, He went and cleansed the temple. And the Jews say, who gave you authority to do these things? What sign will you show us? And he says, well, a perverse perverse generation looks for a sign, and you'll get no sign but that of Jonah in one place. In another place, he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. 
speaking of the temple of his body. So when he raised himself up after three days of being crucified, it was strong evidence, just undeniable, that he is indeed who he claimed to be. He is the Messiah, the Son of God. Now these words, miracles, wonders, and signs, they're not synonyms. These are It's a multifaceted idea that gives us a broader picture of what Jesus did and why he did them, to the end that he did them. Miracles, it speaks of power, something supernatural that cannot be done naturally. Wonders are done to amaze people, to blow their minds, where you go, wow, how could you have known that beforehand? Even like what's happening here with the, the praising of God in different tongues, where they're like, they were all wondering, right? They were skeptical, they were confused, wondering how could this be? Signs provide guidance and direction. Jesus did many signs that pointed to his divinity. It's like arrows saying, I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. After he healed a man born blind or raised up the paralytic, and he says, um, so you know I have the power to forgive sins. I say to you, rise and walk. And the paralyzed man got up and walked. And people are like, whoa, we've never seen anything like this before. The fame of Jesus, when he did these signs and wonders, had spread throughout the land. These devout Jews had heard of Jesus. Perhaps they'd even seen miracles he did. But they were left scratching their heads. They weren't able to connect the things that Jesus did and said and who he was. And led by the Holy Spirit, Peter makes it personal. He lays the blame of the crucifixion squarely upon these hearers of his. He says, you crucified Jesus. You crucified the one that's the Messiah God sent to save people from their sin. You're guilty of that. It was according to the determined purpose that God had, but he says, he was taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. He minces no words here. Can you imagine if you made a mistake like that? Like you need salvation, God sends a savior, and you betray him and you kill him. That would be a pretty heavy weight, I would think. It's like, what do I do now? I say I I destroyed my only chance for salvation through wickedness. The only God, the only God that can save me, I killed. How could this be? Amazingly, it's not the end because Jesus rose from the dead. In him dying, it actually provided a way of salvation for everyone. So as, as Paul said, oh, the riches of God, his ways are past finding out. Who can know the depth of his wisdom? Peter quotes from Psalm 16, 8 through 11, rightly understanding that David spoke of Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah. The devout Jews would have held David in high regard. And the things that he wrote, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he speaks of one greater than himself. These prophetic words he spoke, it transcended his own experience of being delivered from death and speaks of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. And that through him, he is the way, the truth, and the life. He says of God, You have made me to know the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. And Jesus gives joy that no one can take away. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the way, right? 
So there's this great connection there. Verse 29, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Being in Jerusalem, Peter could have just waved his hand toward uh, David's tomb, where his bones were laying. And he said to the fellow Jews, let's be honest, guys. David wrote these immortal words, but his body is dead. He's laying in that tomb over there. He has seen corruption. So clearly, this was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he wasn't only writing about himself. He was writing about the Messiah who would come. He was writing of the one who would come of the, the line of Judah who would sit on that everlasting throne that God promised David in his house. He said, David wanted to build God a house, and God said, no, I'm going to give you a house. I'm going to have your, your seed will be an eternal kingdom. Like he's going to rule forever. Jesus did not remain in the grave. His body did not see corruption. He was raised glorified. He did not decompose, raised from death to life and ascended to the Father. And so all had happened as the scripture had said. The, the, the scripture is unbreakable. Jesus said the scripture cannot be broken. And the believers, it says, uh, they, so Peter and John, they saw the empty tomb of Jesus. And I love what the scriptures appeal to. Because at this moment, it wasn't that they remembered what Jesus had said. They would remember. But it says in John 29, for as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. How cool is that? When you read the scripture, you know it's going to be true. And that was the basis of their belief. That's what it needed to be. But when they saw that empty tomb, they're like, well, what do we do about this? There's no body here. They weren't quite sure what to think. They didn't know the scripture. The scripture could not be broken. And in the same way, Jesus Christ has promised the gift of the Holy Spirit to all who ask him. Peter quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, in verse 34, where he says, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. To the Jews, this made a lot of sense. To us, I doubt it makes a lot of sense. Like We're like, that doesn't seem really conclusive. I'm not even really sure what he's talking about. But let's hear what Jesus had to say on this exact passage. If you'll turn to Mark chapter 12, 35 through 37. I like that Jesus explains these difficult passages and makes the connections that are impossible for us to draw. Mark 12, 
starting in verse 35, Jesus had been asked all manner of questions from a position of doubt. People doubted the scribes and the Pharisees and religious rulers. They doubted that Jesus was the Christ. They envied him. They were always trying to trap him and trick him in his words. They kept asking him questions. Jesus kept asking them questions. They kept looking bad. And then finally Jesus just starts just asking them question after question. It says from then on they didn't ask him any questions anymore. Just was not uh, good PR for them. So Mark 12, 35. Then Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David calls him Lord, himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. To this day, the Orthodox Jews do not believe that the Messiah will be divine. They believe that the Messiah will just be a man. And that man will have children who will have children who will continue this this reign. So the scribes in this passage, they agree that that the Messiah would be the son of David. The son of David would have to come from David's line. That would be the Messiah. But what they denied was that the Messiah would also be the son of God, divine and equal with the Father in nature. So Jesus asked them, well, if you say he's the son of David, how does he call him Lord? Because in a, it says the patriarch. You know, in a patriarchal society, you do not give greater glory to the son. The father gets the glory, right? The father gets the honor. But he says he, he is talking through the Holy Spirit and calling his son Lord. How does he do that unless he's also the son of God? And that's the point he's making here. The Messiah is of David's line, and he's also the Son of God. God made flesh. If you go further in that psalm, in Psalm 110, verse 4, David goes on to say, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And for you who've been studying Hebrews, you know that this is a clear reference to Jesus, that Melchizedek was a picture of the Old Testament of that king and priest that Jesus is for us now. The king was not the priest. Those were two distinct roles within Judaism. But we have here Jesus Christ, the king of kings, and the great high priest for us. So what is Peter's punchline? Right There's the roaring sound. The tongues are spoken. People gather. What's going on? And Peter says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God had made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. The one that they had crucified had raised from the dead. God had made him Lord, kurios, which means supreme and authority. No one's above him is the Messiah, the master of all. He is the Christ. He's the one who John spoke of, John the Baptist, who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Those who entrust themselves to him and believe in him, he is going to fill with the Holy Spirit. And those who refuse and reject him, he will judge with eternal fire. 
This is who he is. He is the judge of all the earth who only does right, who is gracious. And so the meaning behind these various tongues speaking for the glory of God, it pointed to the living God, Jesus Christ, who had sent the gift of the Holy Spirit, the one they crucified. And they didn't miss that because look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children, and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. After hearing this address, what was the response of the people? It says they were cut to the heart. The sharp blade of the sword of the Spirit, it laid bare their guilty conscience. It exposed them before the justice of God. And they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? They knew that they had done wrong. But how could they undo what they had done? How could they make good on such a sin? And Peter tells them to do the same thing that Jesus preached from the beginning of his ministry, repent. And that's the first thing we need to do when we have sinned. And repentance is more than acknowledging we have done wrong or that we feel bad or sorry for what we've done. But it's first to agree with the word of God, to allow our sin to be exposed by it, to admit our guilt, and then to refuse and reject it and say, I'm not going down that path again. So it's to agree with God's word, to admit we're guilty, and to reject that, that change of life that needs to occur. That's repentance. And without repentance, there's no forgiveness and there's no salvation. So it's a really critical doctrine that we would repent. We would not just admit that we're wrong or confess our sin, but we would turn from our sin and do the righteous thing, to obey God. We cannot. You can never... Try to undo the bad you've done, the sins you've done, by trying to do good. It's a pretty gruesome picture, but it's very relevant because the wages of sin is death. Can you imagine if you had a dead corpse and you feel really bad about it, and so you decide, I'm going to wash this body. I'm going to dress it in new clothes. I'm going to put makeup on it. It'll be just like it's alive again, right? Well, no amount of washing is going to stop the putrefaction that's happening within. The decomposition process is going to keep happening no matter how you dress it up. So you can't try to do good. You know, you could give gifts to the dead body. You can display it. I don't know what you would do, but it'd just be horrible. And when we, when we sin and we think, oh, well, I'll just do good and it'll make up for it. It can't. It's impossible because sin brings death. Sin brings separation from God. And if we want to be cleansed, if we want to be made alive unto God, we must repent and admit we are sinners deserving of eternal judgment and hell forever. That's what our sin calls for. It demands it of a righteous God. But if we repent, God is faithful. He will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and we can be born again and be filled with his Spirit. So praise him that he does such wondrous things. 
So instead of dressing up dead, we need to be made alive to him. We need to be cleansed. And God, in his grace, does that. He he uses the word to cut to the heart to make way for healing. What we see Peter saying, it's not to be viewed as a, a formula for salvation or a formula to receive the Holy the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but it's an exhortation to those people on this day. To the Jews, baptism was a sign of repentance. Remember, they all had the baptism of John. It was a baptism of repentance that, that yeah, we, we have forsaken God. We have neglected our duty as his children. Uh, but this is greater than that, that they would be born again. Um, And also in being baptized, they would identify with Jesus Christ, who also was baptized. When they repented, the blood of Jesus would cleanse them. They would receive the Holy Spirit, even as the apostles had. And this promise, as we see, is not for the Jews only, but to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And praise the Lord, we are numbered among those. To all who are afar off, we have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. The wall of separation of sin that kept us from God has been broken down by Jesus on the cross. And if we will come near to him in a humble repentance and faith, we can be born again. We can be saved. Not everyone received the word, but 3,000 people did. And they followed through with baptism. And it says 3,000 were added that day to their number. They responded with saving faith after the sign of tongues, the preaching of Peter, and were filled with the Spirit. So kind of going back to the beginning, it's really the beauty of the gospel. Man has rebelled from God from the start. In the tree of the, the tree of, uh, so in the Garden of Eden, there was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In the midst of the tree, there was also the tree of life. They were both there at the beginning. But man chose to eat from the tree that God forbade him to, and Humanity was thrown into sin. Everyone was disobedient, even after God judged the world, right, with the great flood. He said, fill the earth. And they said, nah, we'll stick together. And we're going to build this tower to reach up to heaven. And so God confounded their languages. And then they scattered. They called that tower Babel. But God has a heart to bring people to himself. And so he used all these various languages spoken by his people, the great wonders and praises of God, to draw people to himself so that they could be saved, so that they could know his love and be redeemed. The God who confounded the tongues at Babel, he used tongues as a sign to unite people in his gospel of love and grace and salvation. Not all Christians are gifted to speak in tongues, but the promise of the Holy Spirit is for you and for your children. And as I was uh, speaking just now, there's a place in in California called uh, Legoland. And in Legoland, there's this water park. Has anyone ever been there? Yeah, see, I knew it. I knew that somebody had been there. So anyway, there's this water park, and, and one of the highlights for me was in the water park section, was to watch people congregate under this massive, it was a bucket. And it it had this big warning on the side of it. It says, like, do not stand directly under the bucket. Uh, The water comes out with great force. Of course, you're you're welcome to, but just a warning, it comes out strong. 
And I don't know how many, how many ten thousands of liters are in this, but it fills up, and by the time it's about to start being tipped, it's like ding, 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 alarm goes off, and then whoosh, and it just, kids are like falling down and, you know, running back under it again, and it was fun to watch, right? It was pretty uh, exciting to see that water come down, and I didn't want to get wet, so I was nowhere near the drop zone. Um, but I think the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is very much that way. We need to orient ourselves and be willing to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to receive that gift. I was not willing on that day. Hey, the clothes I was wearing, my plants were there. I did not want wet feet. I did not want uh, wet pants. You know, I still had the whole day left. It wasn't. I wasn't interested. And I think when it comes to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, we can be a little reticent. We can say, oh, well, you know, it's, it's pretty cool to see God doing stuff. I, I want to see, um, you know, signs and, and the power of God poured out upon his people. But are you willing to be one of those people who the Holy Spirit's poured out on, who he can use however he wants to do his will? So we don't just wait and watch for something to happen. When we seek the Lord and we surrender ourselves to him and we desire the fullness of the Spirit, all we need to do is receive because he's promised to give him. The promise is for you and for your children, as many as our Lord will call. And who did Jesus call when he says, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink? He shouted to everyone and he does the same today. If you're parched, if you're thirsty, it's not just to satisfy your thirst. It's not just to make you feel like you're more viable now. It's so you can be his witness in Jerusalem and Samaria in Judea to the end of the earth for all your days that you could be filled with his spirit. It starts with faith, surrender, and obedience. Many gladly received the word that day. Will you receive this word today? Will you receive the gift of God today? May we all. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us tongues to praise you, that we can uh, use our lips to magnify and glorify our name, your name. Thank you that you are a holy God, a great God, worthy of all praise and honor, the one who has uh, done all things well, and you've given us life and liberty to all who believe. And Lord, may we be those who, who desire to be filled with your Spirit, who are not afraid of man, who want to be bold and empowered to do your will. And I pray, Lord, that if we have not yet experienced the fullness of God, that we would come before you asking humbly, trusting your word. For you say that if we ask according to your will, you hear us. And if you hear us, we have what we've requested of you. Lord, may we not seek an emotional experience or some sort of, uh, um, I guess, an arbitrary experience, but to know you, to be able to praise you, to glorify you as you desire, as you deserve. Lord, may you quicken us by your spirit. And I pray that we would be filled with your joy and your peace, that your love would be evident in our lives, that out of our mouths would come gracious words, that you would uh, cause us to humble ourselves before you, Lord, to give you the honor and praise uh, that you are worthy of. So I thank you, Lord, for this word today. Thank you that it cannot be broken, that it is true. And may we walk in the light of it in Jesus' name. Amen.